0: morning. It is a privilege to be here uh, with myself, my wife Blair, and our son Sage. Uh, This is the second opportunity I've had to preach here and just very thankful to be able to share God's word with you uh, this morning. Is self-centeredness at an all-time high? Seems like it. And the culture at large has noticed. In recent years, we've seen books published with titles such as The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in the Age of Entitlement, and Why Is It Always About You? and perhaps my favorite title, Children of the Self-Absorbed, A Grown-Up's Guide to Getting Over Narcissistic Parents. Just a few weeks ago, the cover story article of Time magazine referred to millennials as the me, me, me generation. In their book On the Narcissism Epidemic, psych- psychologists Gene Twinge and Keith Campbell write this, The United States is currently suffering from an epidemic of narcissism. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines an epidemic as an affliction affecting a disproportionately large numbers of individuals within a population. And narcissism more than fits the bill. Understanding the narcissism epidemic is important because its long-term consequences are destructive to society. American culture's focus on self-admiration has caused a flight from reality to the land of grandiose fantasy. We have phony rich people with interest-only mortgages and piles of debt, phony beauty with plastic surgery and cosmetic procedures, phony athletes with performance enhancing drugs, phony celebrities via reality TV and YouTube, phony feelings of being special among children with parenting and education focused on self-esteem, and phony friends with the social networking explosion. All this fantasy might feel good, but unfortunately, reality always wins. The mortgage meltdown and the resulting financial crisis are just one demonstration of how inflated desires eventually crash to earth." End quote. A common theme in the articles about narcissism is the role that social media and reality shows have played in fanning the flames of our self-absorption. And so I ask again, is self-centeredness at an all-time high? In a response to the Time magazine article, a writer for The Atlantic actually makes the argument that it's not such a new thing, but that every generation has been the me, me, me generation. And they provided articles dating all the way back to the early 1900s that talk about how narcissism has manifested itself in different decades. And of course, as Christians, we know that this issue of self-centeredness goes back way farther than even that. Self-centeredness has been a problem in this world as long as sin has been a problem. Implied in the biblical commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is the sad reality that we have an inclination towards the opposite. In commanding those things, God is calling us to something beyond our natural disposition towards self-love. In 2 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul warns Timothy about the difficult times coming in the last days. And then he gives a long list of sins that will characterize people in those times. And the first sin that he mentions, people will be lovers of self. And so this is nothing new. The truth is that social media doesn't create self-centeredness. It just feeds and encourages what's already there in the human heart we come into this world with a disposition a bent towards selfishness we don't have to teach children to be selfish they already know how to keep the toy for themselves no we have to teach them to share the toy If we as parents aren't careful or if we idolize our kids, we'll reinforce the idea that they already have that the world revolves around them. Our natural inclination is to make decisions based primarily on self-interest. In just about everything we do, we are naturally wired to ask, what's in it for me? It's how we choose jobs, how we choose who to date, where we live, when or even if we'll have children, how we choose our friends, even how we marry. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller says this, quote, the main barrier to the development of a servant heart in marriage is the radical self-centeredness of the human heart. Self-centeredness is a havoc wreaking problem in many marriages, and it is the ever-present enemy of every marriage. It is the cancer in the center of every marriage when it begins, and it has to be dealt with, End quote. Well, whether married or single, young or old, rich or poor, we are universally plagued by the sin of self-centeredness. C.S. Lewis said about selfishness, at this very moment, you and I are either committing selfishness or about to commit it or repenting of it. That's our problem, radical self-centeredness. This is one area where secular and Christian commentators are in complete agreement. But while the secular psychologists and journalists have done a good job of diagnosing the problem, they all fall short when it comes to solutions. They primarily talk about getting rid of or cutting back on external things, but they do nothing to actually address the heart, which biblically is the main issue. The Bible calls Christians to something completely different, that is, radical selflessness. Radical selflessness. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What it means to glorify God with one voice through radical selflessness. And so I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Romans 15, and I'll read starting at verse 1. This is God's word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, Glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. We just pray with me one more time? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light for our path. Father, we pray now that what comes forth today would not just be the mere words of man, but that you, the living God, would speak to us, that we would hear from you. And Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would use the word of God to reveal the Son of God. And we pray that you do it for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. In our text today, I want us to notice four things, all related to radical selflessness. First, the mandate. Second, the model. Third, the means. And fourth, the motive. The mandate, the model, the means, and the motive for radical selflessness. First, the mandate. We see this in verse 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up just to give a sense of the context and where we are in the book. We're towards the end of the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters of the book dealt with the problem of sin and our universal guilt before God. It also dealt with what God has done in Christ to rescue us from our sins. Beginning in chapter 12, we see very practical instruction on how to live in light of the salvation that we've received. And so we're coming to the end of the book, and we're right in the middle of a section that's dealing with how Christians from different backgrounds ought to interact with one another. Now, in this particular instance, it's Jewish and Gentile Christians. And so in verse 1, Paul uses the terminology of strong And weak, that is relative to their faith, strong in faith or weak in faith. Now the particular issue at hand here is the observance of Jewish dietary laws and the Sabbath. So you have this issue of Jews who are uh, very familiar, worship the God of the Old Testament, and and they're, they're struggling with transitioning from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. And so, so for the Jewish person in this time, the, the weak one in this case, they look at the dietary laws and say, as a good Jew, I know I'm a Christian, I'm saved by Christ, but as a good Jew, I want to continue in with these dietary laws, observing the Sabbath. And, and they were tempted to judge the Gentile Christians who they're not coming from that background at all. And so for them, it's all about this grace that they've received in Christ, that they're, they're free from the dietary laws. And so the, the Jews are tempted to judge their Gentile brothers and sisters. And the Gentiles are tempted to look down on their Jewish brothers and sisters. And so in this case, the Jews were the weaker brothers. Now, interestingly enough, when we read a text like this, like chapter 15, verse 1, don't we just automatically identify with the strong? <laughs> we, we just assume that when he says, we who are strong, oh, uh, uh, that's us. That's me. Okay. This is an instruction for me. Okay, Paul, tell me, how should I deal with my weaker brother? But the reality is that in a diverse community of believers, at some point, we're all gonna be either strong or weak in particular areas. And so in 1 Corinthians 8, we actually see similar instructions regarding food sacrificed to idols. And so in that context, in, in Corinth, the Jewish Christians there, they knew that idols, they're nothing, and that there's only one God, but for the Gentile coming out of paganism, that was a big deal, food sacrifice to idols. And so in Corinth, the Gentiles were the ones who were weak in faith there, and the Jews were the strong ones. It could be different depending on the context. Now for us, it may not be Jewish dietary laws or meat sacrifice to idols, but more likely it's going to be things like where we stand on certain cultural issues or maybe secondary issues in the church. So things like how we educate our kids, for instance. Homeschool or not homeschool. You're Christians on both sides of that. It might be courtship versus dating. Maybe what kind of worship style should we use? What political party do you belong to? These are the kinds of things that Christians disagree about. And in any event, the mandate is toward a radical selflessness. You see the strong language in verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the week, that word obligation is closely related to another word used earlier in Romans chapter eight verse twelve, where it says, "We are not debtors to the flesh." It's the idea of debt, the idea of of owing. It says we are in debt to our brothers and our sisters. We owe it to them. What do we owe them? To bear, to bear. And when it says to bear here, it doesn't simply mean just to tolerate or just simply you stay over there. I'll kind of put up with you, but I don't really want to have too much to do with you. No, to bear is the same word as Galatians 6, 2, which says bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. One commentator on this passage says of the word bear, it means To sympathetically enter into their attitudes, refraining from criticizing and judging them, and to do what love would require to do to them. It's a high calling to to enter into the world of of a fellow believer with whom we have a disagreement and not to judge them, not to criticize them, but to actually listen to them to enter into their world to to bear them on ourselves and notice at the end of verse one it says this obligation is not to please ourselves not to please ourselves why not it's simple that wouldn't be loving first corinthians chapter 3 verse 5 speaking of love it says Love does not insist on its own way. Another translation, it's not self-seeking. Now, do you see that that this command doesn't even make sense apart from the context of a relationship? It assumes that we are going to be in genuine, close relationship with other Christians who are different than us. We can't even apply it otherwise. Now, it may be cultural differences. It may be differences in background, in personality, socioeconomic status, education. When you look around at your circle of close relationships, is this true? Or do you find yourselves more likely surrounded with people who think just like you, act just like you, dress just like you, similar background? Verse two says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And when it says please there, it's not the negative sense of people pleasing, but it's actually contrasted with Uh, chapter 14 verse 15 where it says if your brother is grieved by what you eat you are no longer walking in love by what you eat do not destroy the one for whom Christ died and so the the opposite of, of grieving our brothers would be to seek to please our brothers and sisters and so what this is saying is that when it when it comes to Christians who are different from us We should act towards them in such a way that they actually benefit. Build up. That they might be built up. That word build up is the same exact word that Jesus used when he said, I will build my church in Matthew 16, 18. The Apostle Paul uses similar imagery, this idea of building in Ephesians chapter 4. Starting at verse 11, he says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for what? For building up the body of Christ. Until so we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so this radical selflessness that the believer is being called to is he's calling us to lay down our own rights and preferences so that our brother or our sister might be built up and not just for their sake but for the sake of the building up of the body for the building up of the church I wonder if you see that as ministry. When it says the work of ministry, we may be tempted to think that that just simply means foreign missions or something like that. But this is something that we all participate in. It's not just something that the pastor does or the elders do. But we're all called to this ministry. What might this ministry look like? It might look like calling someone that you wouldn't naturally call to go have a cup of coffee and talk, knowing that they stand on the other side, whatever the other side might be. This is what we're being called to. That's the mandate. Now let's look at the model, the model of radical selflessness we see it in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. After giving the command or the mandate in verse 2, in verse 3, it points to Christ as the ultimate example of this principle of not pleasing himself. And to do this, he quotes from Psalm 69, verse 9, which we read earlier in the service. In Psalm 69, verse 9, so so we're we're being taken all the way back to the Old Testament, to verses that were written a thousand years before Christ was even born. And the Holy Spirit puts the words of Psalm 69, verse 9, in the mouth of, of Jesus Christ in our text. In fact, the psalm as a whole is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. I'm just going to read that whole verse uh, because uh, here in in chapter 15, the second half of the verse is quoted, but the, the whole verse says, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So that first half of the verse, zeal for your house has consumed me, should sound familiar to us because it was applied to Jesus in John chapter 2, verse 17, after he drove the money changers away from the temple. And then the second half that we see in our text, when it speaks about reproach, it it speaks to the slander, the accusations, and the insults that Jesus received his entire earthly ministry. So just a few examples of this. In John chapter 7, verse 5, it says that even his brothers didn't believe in him. That's the reproach being spoken of. In John chapter 8, verse 48, uh, Jesus is accused of being demon-possessed. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, the Pharisees accuse Jesus of driving out demons by the prince of demons. In Matthew 27, verse 42, when Jesus is on the cross, it says, they mocked him on the cross, saying, he saved others he cannot save himself, and even the thieves he was crucified with hurled insults at him. This is the reproach that Jesus suffered. And what and this verse in Psalm 69 is saying is that when Christ suffered that reproach, it was actually being aimed at God himself. If you want to know how humanity feels about God, all we have to do is look at how we treated him when he came. But the thing is, Jesus didn't deserve any of that. He was sinless. Jesus, when he suffered that reproach, he did it for sinners And that's why it says he didn't please himself in verse 3. He could have just stayed in heaven where he was eternally happy with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. But he chose not to do that. He chose to come. Not to please himself, but he died for our sake. We've been talking about this idea of radical self centeredness that characterizes all of us from birth. That is hugely problematic because this universe is not centered on us. This universe does not exist for us. This universe exists for the glory of God. We were made to exalt, worship, and live for the glory of God. And the problem is that none of us does it naturally. We're all caught up into ourselves. And if we stay in that state and die in that state, God, in his wrath and his righteousness and his justice, will punish for all eternity. The good news is that God sent his son into this world to live the perfect life that none of us could live. Jesus exemplified what it meant to live a life that was other and outward focused, primarily on the glory of God. And then he suffers that reproach. He goes to the cross. And on the cross, he takes the full weight of the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. On the third day, he rises from the grave, thus vindicating the name of his father. And he did it so that all of us who are so self-centered can look away from ourselves, turn from our sins and look to Christ And he's promised that all who trust in him shall be saved from the wrath to come. That's the good news of the gospel, and that's the call for all of us. If you're not a Christian, the call is to turn from your sins and trust in this Christ. If you are a Christian, the call is to daily continue to repent and call on this Christ. Jesus died for the strong and the weak. Now, if, if Jesus suffered reproach and the wrath of God in the place of the weak, why can't we seek to love our brothers and sisters whom Christ died for? This is a radical selflessness. Next, let's look at the means of radical selflessness. We see this in verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. And so after quoting from Psalm 69, the Apostle Paul takes the time to instruct them on how he just used that Old Testament passage to apply to their particular situation. And in it, we see a very high view of scripture. All, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, referring to the entire Old Testament. A few chapters earlier in Romans 12, verse two, we're told not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Well, how is that going to happen if it's not through the scriptures? In the Christian life, we never stand still. We're either becoming more like the world in our thinking or we're becoming more conformed to the word in our thinking. There's no no neutral in the Christian life. Something is always shaping us. This world is constantly feeding on our natural bent towards self-centeredness. If we're going to become radically selfless, we're going to need something more powerful than the world, and that—that's this, right here. This, the Scriptures, is what we need. I love how the hymn says, "How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith." in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? That's good. What more can he say? His word is sufficient, has everything that we need. It's God-breathed, profitable for teaching, rebuke, correction, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped, For how much good work? Every, every good work. The sufficiency of the scriptures. And so here we see two specific things that the scriptures provide. Endurance and encouragement. We see that in verse 4 and repeated in verse 5. If we're going to obey the the radical call... (laughs) This mandate to radical selflessness that we see in verse one and two, we're gonna need both. We're gonna need endurance and we're gonna need encouragement. Endurance because it's just easier to give up when it comes to dealing with brothers and sisters who are different from us. It's easier to just, just stop and just go and hang out with the people that I would normally hang out with anyway. It takes effort. To endure. It takes encouragement or comfort because because giving of ourselves in this way, this this, this idea of, of not pleasing ourselves, it requires a sacrifice. In order to not live for ourselves, we have to give up a part of ourselves. And that can be painful. Sacrifice is always painful. And so because of that, we're going to need encouragement. That word encouragement is closely related to the word paraclete, the word that's used of the Holy Spirit. And this endurance or steadfastness, this encouragement, it leads to something even greater. And we see it in verse five. It's it's hope and hope being the opposite of despair. And so we see in verse 6 that God himself is the source of both, encouragement, endurance. And so if we were to kind of put it all together, uh, the the means that God uses to produce radical selflessness is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, as, as the scriptures are applied in our lives. The work of the spirit as the scriptures are applied in our lives. And you notice that at the beginning of verse five, in that sentence, it says, may God grant this. <laughs> that is, it's, it's something to be prayed for. We, if, if we're going to live in harmony amongst those brothers and sisters who are different from us, God is, is going to have to be gracious to us to bring that about. And so, that's something we should be praying for. God, give us us unity. Give us diversity. Give us unity in our diversity. Things that God values, let us pray for these things. This week, ask God, for you personally, is there anyone that you could reach out to who may be, who you wouldn't normally reach out to? finally let's look at the motive for radical selflessness we see this in verse 6 and 7 says that together you may with one voice glorify the god and father of our lord jesus christ therefore welcome one another as christ has welcomed you for the glory of god The motive for radical selflessness is the glory of God. And at the end of the day, that is the best ultimate motive. You see, sometimes we can do things for people that appear to be not pleasing ourselves, but we're actually doing it with self-interest in mind. And so we might give because it makes me feel generous. Might spend time with someone different because it just makes me feel better about myself. Hey, I'm spending time with someone different. (laughs) But when God's glory is the goal, it removes me from the equation altogether because it's not about me. It's about glorifying God through serving my brother or my sister and building them up welcome one another or accept one another like christ welcomed us well how did christ welcome us you want to talk about different (laughs) we we, we were as different from christ as possible as, as we possibly could be we're talking about someone who is infinitely holy infinitely majestic eternal, awesome beyond all comprehension and we're talking about us created, dependent sinful even could not be a bigger difference between Christ and us and yet what does Jesus do? He comes and he bridges the gap he comes and he meets us where we are, he welcomes us. He gives his very life for us. And so he accepts us even at his own expense, his own rejection. Here's something to meditate on if I want to kind of sum up what this call is. God is calling you to adjust your life and make changes in order to have deep relationships with someone who is very different than you. God is calling you to adjust your life and make changes in order to have deep relationships with someone who is very different from you. That's what Christ did. Christ inconvenienced himself for us. He took our failings upon himself. He went out of his way to welcome us, to bring us in. And now, he's making a place for us in order to show us hospitality for all eternity. That we might glorify God with one voice. Is self-centeredness at an all-time high? Maybe. But in and through Christ, we have the privilege to lose our lives in order that we might truly find them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We see what your command is. But Lord, we know that in ourselves, we are, um, we're, we're We're selfish. Lord, would you give us mercy? Would you help us to repent of our self-centeredness? And would you teach us what it means to inconvenience ourselves, extend ourselves for others, not to please ourselves, but that they might be built up? We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the model that we have in Christ. And we thank you that he is not only a model. He's much more than a model. (laughs) He's a savior. And he's rescued us from our sins. And so let us do this for the glory of your great name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.